ready to wake up, you're going to wake up. And if you're not ready, you're going to stay pretending that you're just a little, poor little me. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man nor a group of men, but in all men, in you, you the people have the power. The world is like a ride at an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. Everybody is I. You all know you are you. And wheresoever beings exist throughout all galaxies, it doesn't make any difference. You are all of them. And when they come into being, that's you coming into being. Hey, what is up everyone? Hope you're all doing well wherever you are in the world. And this week on the podcast, we are joined by Clive DeCall. This is actually Clive's second time on the podcast. And this is from our time at the Glastonbury Symposium. And if you've not heard the first podcast that we did with Clive, I would definitely recommend checking that out. I think it was maybe about 14 episodes ago. It'll be there anyway. And in this one, in this podcast, we dive deeper into the world of health. And if you don't know who Clive is, Clive is a very interesting guy. He's a natural health practitioner and he's travelled the world, basically studying the diets and lifestyles of the world's longest-lived peoples. And he's been investigating the world of health for a very long time now. And I did just also want to add, before we get into this podcast, that after the last conversation that we did do with Clive, we had such a brilliant email by a person called Ashlyn Bridgewater. And it was basically around the talking point of vegan diets, As in the last podcast, we slightly touched on that. And just to give a bit more clarity on the topic, as from this question that Ashlyn asked, I think it needs a a bit more clarity and a bit more sort of, and I wanted to sort of give my answer on the question as well, because maybe some other people out there are also asking the same thing. But basically, the question that Ashlyn asked was basically around the topic and the question of can a primary-based diet of vegan or plant-based diet achieve optimal health without taking dietary, supp- dietary supplements, which I think is a really good question. So like I said before, I know in the previous podcast we slightly touched on this, but just to give my own answer and where I'm at on my journey. And as you know, my own understanding, and even since we did the last podcast with Clive, which was a while ago, and even this one that's out now was a while ago, my own research and thinking has shifted, and it always is, and it should always shift as well as you get a new bit of knowledge. But anyway, just to quickly speak on this, and speak on basically the the topic and the question of the best diet for optimal health, and basically can a primary diet of just plant-based, i.e. vegan, be optimal for who you are. So where I'm currently at on my journey, I'm very much on the fence with this topic, and I'm still trying to build up my own research in a deeper awareness around it and I most certainly do feel that it may be possible for vegan diets to achieve optimal health without taking dietary supplements. However, all the research that I've seen on both sides of of eating meat and only eating a plant-based diet, all the studies on both sides of the coin are flawed in my opinion. As with my own understanding, there is far too many factors in terms of eating food the time the study took place, the absorption level in the studies, were the subjects in the studies completely truthful? And there's also the big factor of that we know how complex the human body is. And the human body is far too complex, as we know, 
And we also know that health is not only just determined by what we eat, it's stress, pollution, it's mindset, it's community, and many other things as well. There is too many factors that would be influencing all the subjects to, to, give, to give and determine solid data, in my opinion, on the question of health as a whole. But on my own journey now, the biggest thing that I'm currently trying to work on through is the ethical question. And I'm sure there's probably a lot of you out there in the same boat as well. Maybe there's some people who listen to this podcast who are on the vegan side of the coin. Maybe it's people who are more on the sort of eating meat side of the coin. And in my opinion, yes, the question of sufficient nutrition element of what meat may provide is important. But in my opinion, the question that I'm currently working on, the biggest one for me is should we actually be eating animals full stop? And this is something that I'm very much asking myself nearly every day. And there's probably not a day that goes by where I'm not asking myself this question. But anyway, maybe that's to go further into and observe now thoughts. So basically what I'm actually trying to say is that you should definitely take on board studies and research. But in many cases, through my own experience, you should first go with your gut and then while you're on that journey, educate yourself at the same time, but at the same time, be your own test subject. Even just take a week of eating, eating a plant-based diet, see how you feel. You can even get some blood tests done, you can get your gut biome tested, but just try about and play with a few different things. And eventually from that, whatever you choose, whether you want to eat meat, whether you want to be a vegan, whatever it is, you will eventually see your path that is in a line with you. So anyway, I hope that added a few things to your mind or not. But anyway, enjoy this conversation. Peace and love. Thank you so much for doing this again. Round two. <laughs> Round, <My pleasure. laughs> Round two. Um, but in regards to what we were talking about in the previous conversation we had, um, a lot of the stuff that we are talking about seems to me that we're going back to this sort of, we're going back to a sort of an old model that's always been there of the way we should be eating food and things like that. But do you think there's like, um, I don't know if perfect's the right way, but is there a, a certain diet you think that humans should be eating? Or is it varied across all? Well, I mean, it would appear that before we were enslaved, we were hunter-gatherers. Yeah. And I think we have the facility to be omnivores, but primarily herbivores, if you just look at the teeth. Mm. You know, the real sign of a carnivore is you give give a baby a bunny and, a, and an apple, and if it eats the apple and plays with the bunny it's not a carnivore and if it eats the bunny and plays with the apple it is a carnivore so <laughs> um so but clearly we we there's massive evidence that, you know that we did eat meat and the big thing was fish because no matter what the weather our ancestors generally lived by water because it could be frozen nothing growing at all uh but there's always fish in the sea as the mm. phrase goes mm. And so when you're by the sea, you get all the iodine from the, the ocean and lots and lots of benefits from seafood. And your brain loves seafood as far as the, the fatty component. Mm -hmm. So while, I mean, there's never been a vegan society in the world. Uh, there's been vegetarian societies, 
And generally, if you look at India, the, the vegetarian Indians are usually about a foot shorter than the tall meat eaters. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing, I'm just pointing it yeah, out. Yeah. Um, the people who lived the longest on the planet were people like, or probably were, the people in the Hunza Valley. You know, the Hunza Valley used to be a kingdom by itself, and now it's sort of incorporated into Pakistan, it's on the Afghanistan sort of border. And it was one of those regions in the world that they could never conquer it. Mm -hmm. yeah. It was just impossible. They, you know, they always lost. You know, over the last 200 years, I, I can't remember, almost all the years there's been a war in Afghanistan. For 200 years, nobody's ever won one. Yeah, yeah. Soviets had <laughs> yeah. all the tanks in, didn't they? Well, yeah, yeah, everybody's given up over the years. You know, it's just ridiculous. I expect Genghis Khan to return around. You know. <laughs> um, so what were they eating? Well, they were at a very high altitude. And what they were eating was part of it, but what they were drinking was a huge part. And this is true for most of what they call the blue zones, you know, where people live the longest. Very often there's glacial meltwater involved. So the Hunza got glacial meltwater, and as the glaciers move, they, you know, A, the water frozen there is not recent. So things were different. You know, in the old days, things were bigger, and mm. you know, it, when I was young, you know, dinosaurs ruled the world and that sort of thing. Things were different. And so that water's been around for a while. And it turns out the glacial meltwater has incredible mineral qualities to it. And um, that water, by the way, can be essentially reproduced uh, in many ways. You know, you can, get, you can begin to get close to it by adding unprocessed salt, for instance, to water. Or you can get closer still by adding uh, fulvic and humic minerals. So fulvic and humic minerals are in the soil everywhere, mm. uh, except with modern agriculture and water, water treatment plants, the fulvic and humic aren't in the soil and in the water like they used to be. So people are deficient in, the, in that mineral complex. And because it occurs in soil everywhere, there are places where it's incredibly concentrated and easy to extract. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't, you know, it costs less than £10 a month to run on fulvic minerals, which, as I say, is probably the closest you might be able to get to glacial meltwater. So what did the Hunza eat? Well, they're at high altitude. It, the, most of the wood was a little bit down there sort of thing. And so when they cooked food, they'd use very tight lids, heavy pots, tight, tight lids, and they wouldn't waste anything. They wouldn't boil it and throw away the water. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would be a waste. They made sure they had everything. And they didn't cook for terribly long, because, again, fuel was costly. And, um, they, but they, were, they had trees, you know, mulberry trees, cherry trees, apricot trees, and they would dry the fruits and carry them around in their pockets, and then they'd crack open the nuts, for instance, of the, uh, or the stones in the apricots, or the peaches, or whatever. And there's the same material in all the sort of those sort of fruit seeds and you know, there's if you crack open the apricot seed or the peach seed there's a nut in in the middle mm -hmm. right which you can eat and that's full of vitamin b17 and turns out that vitamin b17 is fabulously anti-cancer for example mm -hmm. and the hunza used to eat the apricots and the apricot kernels and i would be willing to suggest that um, there was essentially no cancer there you know the british raj were sort of in and out of that area so there was a lot of uh, record keeping kept as to how how long people lived and you know obviously the Raj want to tax everybody they can or exploit them in one way or the other so you know births and deaths and so on uh, a lot of stuff was recorded and it turns out they were the longest lived people in the world oh, there wow. were people still working in the fields age 120 people giving birth according to the documentation from the, the 1930s <coughs> um, that women were known to give birth age 80 wow I know um, so you can research uh, all this 
What would you type in to find that? I, think I want to read Hunza that. Valley Longevity would probably get you there. Um, I think that's uh, so it, it's quite 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 interesting what they're eating. So you can get Hunza Valley apricots now. Uh, the first time I ever tried a Hunza Valley apricot, this was about forty years ago, and these apricots were, they were dried. Uh, these apricots were were a revelation. They tasted fantastic, totally other. I mean, dried apricots were Hunza dried apricots. Oh my God, because they're wild. Every apricot is a totally different flavour. Wow. You know, when when I had an organic farm, we had lots of wild stuff, lots of wild pomegranates, and all sorts of wild stuff. And of course, the thing that you realise right away, the wild fig trees, is that every tree is different because there's no hybridisation going on. Now, one one gala apple tastes like the next gala apple because they're all clones, they're all hybrids. But you take wild food like the hunter apricots, and one is magnificent, another one is really good. There's one, yeah, and because ev- every tree is different. So when I had the farm, we knew exactly which trees gave the sweetest fruit, mm-hmm. which ones had the most flavour, and so on. And um, so, yeah, so look, look online, get some Hunza apricots, or you can get them from Ancient Purity. Wow. D- did uh, you feel much better in your body when you, you said there you were growing your own food? I mean, I know obviously on a psychological level you're going to feel better because you're producing your own stuff, but like on, a f- on a physical level, did you feel better as well? I was fine. I was, abs- yeah. Yeah, w- I was eating so much wild food. Um, you know, we had wild mushrooms. There were lots of wild herbs growing. Um, it, you know, I, I was lucky enough that I bought a, a plot of land oh. that had never been... Uh, agriculturally farmed and so it never had chemicals ever there was uh, mountain water coming down not from a glacier unfortunately but from the Sierra Nevadas through an old pre pre you know they'd cut somebody some and I I don't believe it was actually modern man as we know it now had cut through the rocks and there was passageways right down from the Sierra Nevadas way over there Mm -hmm. and we had water six days a week and channeled through little canals watering everything just opened gates Oh, great. What inspired you to do that, to take that route? Oh, well, um, the job that I was, the work that I was doing at the time, I realised I could do from anywhere. And, you know, the internet suddenly had happened, and I realised I don't have to be any, anywhere particularly. Mm-hmm. And so I was looking for a place to live, sell my three-bedroom house in the country, move somewhere else. And I was planning on Italy or Spain, uh, Italy or France, but I couldn't find anything there, so I was looking through the Sunday Times, and there was three lines advert, and I knew it was right for me. It said, two rivers, forest, 40 acres, oh. <laughs> um, farmhouse, something like that. And I flew over there the next morning. Uh, we bought it, and um, I, ju- you know, I just knew it was right. I'm lucky like that. I, every house I've had, I've known, you know. I usually look at 30 others afterwards yeah, and, yeah. and realise that was the one. Yeah. But this time, it happened so many times, I realised that that was the, the right house. And it was amazing. It was. Um, yeah. Yeah, you must go with that intrinsic emotion. Like, if you see something, yeah, that's definitely me. You have to follow it. It's like following your gut. Your gut. And especially in your case, when you're, um, when you're definitely ingesting so much goodness. You're literally you're following your gut. <laughs> you're literally following your gut in that aspect. Um, uh, something I would like to speak on, um, Touchy, and we started talking about um, a bit of um, tribal um, tribal hunter gatherism, and that is um, the induction of the three meals, like breakfast, dinner, lunch. And I was thinking that um, is that against us who we are? Yeah, I'm thinking is that against us as we are, because they uh, when they first introduced into the um, Native American tribes, they were asking them where they keep the food, and their response was always. Um, 
I saw food in the belly of my brother and they were on they had respect for the land they respect for the um, the food that they were going to eat they always had that gratitude for the food and they didn't believe in um in this case of eating for eating repetitively daily at set times they only ate when they were hungry do you think that's a like a, a very sacred and respectful approach to food that we are la- actually lacking well, 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 clearly, I mean, food should be fresh and we're opportunists, you know, we're opportunivores, you might yeah. say. Mm. Um, you know, I like to tell people that I'm a humanitarian, but I've actually given up humans. Um, <laughs> Lifetarian. Yeah. But, you know, all one can do is observe the few tribes that have been discovered recently and how they live. And, yeah, they don't not going to really store much, I don't suppose. Mm-hmm. Why, why would you? Because you know the forest your home intimately. You know exactly where the bees are, where the bears are, where the honey is, where the good stuff is, because mm-hmm. uh, you're in harmony with it. And clearly, on that level, one would never harm nature because that is you, isn't it? It's, it's like smashing up your bedroom. Yeah. yeah. You're just not going to do it. <laughs> do, you, do you think, though, just to go a bit deeper, do you think the standard model of three meals a day could be actually maybe, I mean, I don't know if there's a, a detriment. Film, like a detriment to to our health. Well, I mean, there seems to be a lot of proof, and I'm not an expert on this, but mm-hmm. there seems to be a lot of proof that intermittent fasting would be what yeah. would have happened in nature, because if we, let's say, you know, A, we might not want to go out and collect food right this minute, mm-hmm. uh, but if we were hunting and there wasn't a lot of vegetables because it was the wrong season, then we could, well, just like all an- an- carnivores, for instance, go without food sometimes for fairly long periods. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, as I think we mentioned earlier, all societies have had periods of fasting. Yeah, definitely. And uh, there's, you know, there are, there's a lot of argument to say that you shouldn't eat after 8 o'clock at night. And why not wait till, let's say, midday before you start again? Yeah, there's a lot of evidence for that. There is a lot of evidence for that. And some people say, well, I couldn't possibly do that. Well, that's all right. Uh, but what you're eating as snacks, or, you know, perhaps one page should pay attention to that... I mean, you know, how do we get enslaved? Well, I was farming grains in particular, mm-hmm. corn and wheat and so on, enslaved us. Because then, then yeah. we, were, we could be in, well, we, you know, you can't leave. I think there was a stu- I'm sure there was a study, I mean, you might be familiar with this, it's, it's just ringing in my head, it was, um, was it in Iceland or Norway or Finland? Like a nomadic, some sort of, I think it might have been a nomadic tribe or something like that, and had data of where they had long periods of where they couldn't get food. And the data supported that they actually, as a culture, live in that area compared to other villages, lived a lot longer than others. And you be, I well, don't know what it was called. Well, I, I'm not sure, but I mean, there's so much evidence which goes counter to what we've been taught at school. I mean, mm-hmm. basically, we yeah. were taught a load of rubbish at school, and you know, ideas, dogmas have become fact. You know, so um, people got by up north. You know, in the in the northern hemisphere, usually by by eating more and more fatty foods, the further went they went north until you got to the Eskimos who were eating blubber mainly, yeah, massive well. fat in, intakes. Um, but I mean, in World War Two, when there wasn't food, everybody ripped up their gardens and planted uh, fruits and vegetables, and it, all the records show that Britain was at their healthiest when they were starving during the war. Yeah. So there's when there was a lack of food, rations. Yeah. Well, no, but the fact is the rations were so rubbish that um, they were forced to grow their own vegetables. Oh, right. And therefore they were really healthy because they were yeah. great. They were fresh, they were immediate. You know, I, I got taken on a trip to, to Jersey, and at that point there was a three-star Michelin 
restaurant there, which I got taken to. And we ordered really, really expensive food, very, very flash. And they brought hors d'oeuvres, and it was the potato season, Jer Jersey Royal potatoes. And we all dug into these potatoes with butter on it, and, and they were heaven. We tried to then cancel the meal because we only wanted to eat the potatoes. And I, and I said, Look, how is this possible? How can these potatoes be this good? And they mm -hmm. really were. So, oh, well, there's a big secret. The, the, um, obviously, the chef grows his own potatoes, and he's chosen the best variety he possibly can. He grows them as close to the kitchen door as possible. You know, some gardeners might grow the spinach. He grows the potatoes closest, and he has the, the water ready, and he picks them, and before they know they're dead, he's put them in the water and boiled them. And <laughs> so it's a, it's a matter of minutes. Oh, wow. So minutes. If you do it right away... Uh, well, they haven't, before they've noticed, um, they taste like this. Oh. And so there really are massive differences, you know, between fresh and not fresh. You know, we're used to fresh meaning yesterday. Yeah, no, we, we, we uh, are really lost in the fact that we think fresh is, is something that can store life on a shelf for three to four months with added preservative after preservative. And we... Th as a culture in society we're thinking that these preservatives are showing us as a more advanced culture in the terms of what we're eating and how we're more beneficial now than ever before in, the, in our food storage capability but food storage capability as we've been pointing out is not relevant towards current health the current health at the minute is we're very more prone to disease and sickness very more cancer struck very, um, we're in an obesity crisis and right now is this down to our ridiculous approach with food and preservatives? Something that we were thinking about before was seasonality about food. Is it wrong to suggest that eating foods which aren't in season, say blueberries in the winter, is that a wrong approach? I think that's the least of the worries. The real worry is the chemicals that are being sprayed on the food. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as you so rightly point out, the preservatives... Um, we're not meant to be eating poison. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just a fact. I mean, just imagine, for instance, put it in perspective, you've got two tables full of food, and our job, we're in the lab, and we're going to physically, using the food, turn that into a living human baby. Now, we've got two sources of food, food one on each table. On this table, there's wild raspberries that have just been picked from the mountains and rushed, rushed here. There's wild strawberries. There's the most luscious carrots and... Or, you know, you just think of the nicest fruits and vegetables you possibly can. Maybe there's some lovely almonds and walnuts, and it's all looking so fresh and gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Then on this side, we've got a can of corned beef and some burgers and some chips and some, uh, you know, oil that's rather nasty tasting and some margarine and donuts and ice cream. Which shall we choose to make a healthy baby? Exactly. What do you, what, what's your um, thoughts on... Um sort of as a society avoiding because in society now we, we like sort of we like to have sort of a structure to everything that we do and one of the things that I've noticed is that I mean when I was younger I remember basically running through the dirt get my hands dirty I would I wouldn't be worried about like I remember my mum wouldn't tell us about getting me putting my hands on my mouth or anything like that but as a society now we're sort of avoiding a lot of contact with things that are classed as harmful for us mm -hmm. what do you think about that do you think that's actually hindering who we are because with if we expose ourselves to dirt or whatever it is, that actually could be... I mean, we know we have microorganisms inside ourselves that could be actually strengthened through being exposed to sort of, quote-unquote, harmful things. Do you think that's having an effect well, no, on no, our you're, health? You're, of course, you're 100% yeah. right. 
Um, when we were hunter-gatherers, we wouldn't have washed our hands before meals, yeah. because, and there would have been dirt, there would have yeah. been charcoal. You know, we would have been sitting around the fire, and we'd be breathing in charcoal, which mm. is a fabulously healing and incredibly cheap material to use. Wow. We would have been ingesting a lot of charcoal. But um, uh, aside from that, um, sorry, what was the question again? Basically, what I was talking about is that um, is it actually detrimental to our health that we actually are, are avoiding like dirt and things like that? Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. yeah, no, well, clearly we would have been ingesting dirt and fulvic minerals yeah. come from dirt. Mm-hmm. Um, dirt is very useful and it protects you against all sorts of things and bacteria. You know, there's, if you ask a child these days or a teenager, is bacteria good or bad? What, what do you think they'd answer you? I would say they're bad, bad. What do you think? Yeah, same, bad. Okay, so, um, so I would say most people have been educated to believe that bacteria in general, like viruses, are dangerous and dodgy yeah, and definitely. frightening. Mm-hmm. But of course this is totally untrue. Mm-hmm. What is protecting your skin? You know, your skin is porous, you know, things go in, they come out. Yeah. Um, so what's, what, what's protecting your skin against nasty stuff getting in there? Well, a layer of friendly bacteria. Bacteria are your friends, so all your skin is covered in, in friendly bacteria, which are you know, the, outer, the, the outer walls of your body castle, you might say. So every time somebody run, rubs on antibacterial soap, for example, yeah. they're killing this layer and those chemicals, those antibacterial chemicals, whatever they might be, mm-hmm. are probably going right into the bloodstream because you know, the skin is a two-way valve. You get in the bath and the water in your bath will go in. And if you, you're bathing in chlorine or fluoride or recycled sewage, you better watch out. You want to filter your bath water, filter your shower water. So bacteria has been demonized. In your gut, they say, the great they who know, um, they say that 80% of your immune system is bacteria in your gut. So if that's true, you wouldn't want to take an antibiotic which kills bacteria. Uh, you know, antibiotic meaning translated into English anti-life. Mm-hmm you might want to consider that might wipe out your probiotics, which uh, you're born with. However, there's an interesting point here. Are you born with it? Now, people argue about this, but some years ago when I was growing up, it was considered that this rate of cesarean birth, the necessity for a cesarean might be 3%. In some other societies, it might be 10%. But you think if they're getting things right, it should be really a low percentage. (laughs) Now, let me ask you to have a guess. What do you think the cesarean rate right now in Brazil is? I'm, I'm not too sure about Brazil, but I know it's a lot higher than you think. I think, I mean, I, I wasn't was I sure I heard a figure. It was like, was it 90% or something like that? Yes, that, that, this is what I've been told, yeah. yes. Over 90%. It's now, crazy, that. Why would that be, okay? So it's not that the babies and the mothers are all in trouble. That's mm. not it. It's not a real reason for cesarean, so why would it be? Well, for many decades cosmetics companies have been buying placentas and you, you just put placenta cream on Google and you'll find 200 pounds little pot of placenta cream you know? mm-hmm. because if you steal the life of a baby in the form of the placenta or the, the contents of the placenta should go into the baby yeah. they shouldn't be going into a jar because that builds up their immune system it, well it's part of their immune system yeah. you know the baby we're born in two parts you know and the placenta has 30% they say of our immune system. So if you cut the cord, then the baby's lost 30% of its oomph. But let's say that you want that placenta for money. 
Well, if it comes through the vagina, well, now it's not sterile. But if you do a cesarean and take the baby straight out, then the bits they then steal, uh, the umbilical cord, which is full of stem cells and all everything the baby needs, and they clamp the cord, which never happens in nature. You don't see a you know, an elephant clamping the cord. You know, it mm-hmm. just doesn't happen with any mammal. It's not, not normal, it's not sensible to deprive the baby of 30% of its immune system and so on. But it gets darker than that because if you want, if you're really old, let's say you're, you know, some really old rich person out there, think of somebody you don't like, and let's say they want to get young, well, the best thing would be to steal the umbilical stem cells from a baby, they don't need it, do they, and uh, inject it. Is that into going yourself. on? Do you know if that's going on as well? Oh, of course, it's been going on for ages. Oh. You know, initially, when the first stem cell work, it was people were found it distasteful because they used aborted fetuses to do it. So that was considered worldwide to be unacceptable. So they just switched to doing cesareans and stealing it that way, but mm. using much bigger, rather you know, little fetuses, small, you know, a nice umbilical cord and placenta yeah. is big. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's it's very dark what's going on, and so. You know, what, what do they do when you go into hospital? Because there are, you know, I am told that um, whereas you, if you wanted to donate your organs, you used to have to get an organ donation card mm-hmm. so that you, now they will harvest your organs and sell them um, to the highest bid, bidder without your consent. You yes. have to opt out of donor donation. Kidney, you know, kidney donation and of course if you want a fresh heart or a fresh kidney or a fresh liver it's no good if it's stopped beating mm-hmm. you've got to make the patient in a paralytic state and remove the organs while they're still alive because they're dying anyway they don't, apparently, apparently they don't bother with anaesthetic Jeez, wow, that's incredible. What's your, um, I know this is a bit of a taboo uh, topic and I actually want to ask your thoughts on it like vaccinations I know it's a very sort of st- sticky Okay. Well, there's a big difference between inoculations, which was the original thing that Edward Jenner did with cowpox, rubbing it into, putting it, you know, putting it into um, uh, people that protected them against smallpox. Mm. That's totally different to vaccination. Inoculation and vaccination are two different things. So what vaccination is, is where you take a virus and you do what they call attenuated. So you sort of, sort of make it deadish. Mm. And then you want to keep it... Uh, you want to keep it deadish, so you could put it in formaldehyde, you might preserve it with mercury, you might use aluminium, you might put some antibiotics in there for good measure, and then you've got to grow that vaccine somewhere. So they, they, they first started growing them in chicken's eggs. Okay, well, okay, now you're injecting the DNA of a chicken into you. That sounds so scary, by the way. Uh, so then they thought, that's silly. That's silly. Monkeys are closer, so they started grow, growing the vaccines in monkey kidneys. Now, what could be wrong with that? The fact that they found out later that monkeys have about 70 viruses in their kidneys, and so when you inject monkey viruses into human beings, I don't know why they didn't think of this before. Funnily enough, who would have thought that humans can get ill with monkey viruses? Who would have ever guessed? So look, so that was silly, wasn't it? So we move on, times move forward. So now they do it in uh, aborted babies that's that's better than you know, not all the companies do it in aborted babies uh, but if you look at the ingredients of vaccines 
go on to, for instance, there's a website called whale.to, but there are loads, you know, they're, they're, they're printed. The, the, the ingredients are printed. You'll see, you know, cells from sheep, cells from cows, God knows what. Mm-hmm. Only Frankenstein and his mates could have thought up vaccines as they are today. Well, mm-hmm. But you can talk to any scientist or doctor and you can say stuff like, you'd agree, wouldn't you, that antibiotics, as an example, can't keep up with bacteria. The bacteria keep evolving as well, don't they? Exactly. Yeah. Would you agree also that viruses are mutating and that really we can't possibly keep up with them? Well, of course, they've got to agree. It makes common sense. In that case, why would last year's flu vaccine possibly work this year? Good point. How yeah, could it really work? Good point. And another question as well, if that's a really good point, then what? If we are keep doing this and like adapting a little bit, what type of strong what, what worst type of bacteria are we going to evolve? It could be a bacteria eventually that we evolve if we keep if it, if the if the uh, the the bacteria or the organisms inside ourselves just keep getting more and more adaptive, what are we going to create? We could end up like a, vi- a bit of virus that would, that's uncurable. Yeah. yeah, I mean, well, we're looking at um, another thing as well. The rat po- rat poison now, the rats have actually become starting to become immune themselves to various forms of rat poison, so they have to alter and strengthen dosages. And eventually, these these rats are going to be become like modern day like super really in the vast of in their um, in their in their scale. And this could be bringing like there could be so much that we don't know about the future. That's what uh, I'm thinking. Luckily, rats are incredibly intelligent and avoid, if you excuse the pun, they avoid humans like the plague. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're dangerous to rats, you know. With all the testing we've done on them as well. Um, I was going to say again, I lost my thought. Oh, yeah. Before, as well, I know we had the conversation in the previous podcast about mercury. Is it is also true that there's a lot of mercury in vaccinations? Well, um, in some, yes. Um, you know, thimerosal used to be used commonly. You know, thimerosal is a mercury-containing liquid. And, you know, I, I was in, in ophthalmic optics for several years when I was younger. And standard eye drops always contain thimerosal. So mm-hmm. they're putting mercury right into people's eyes. Uh, and it's from coal-fired power stations, so it's just in the air, whether you like it or not. It's in old fish. You know, we're all likely to be mercury poisoned, and we all need to do something about it. And the, what I would be doing if I, if well, everybody's everybody's toxically poisoned with toxic metals. Saying heavy metals is wrong because there's some really healthy heavy metals. Mm-hmm. It's toxic metals that are the dangerous ones, and the best thing to get toxic metals out are vitamin C in divided doses, taking a lot over a day, but divide, you, know, you take too much vitamin C, take too much magnesium, you get diarrhea. Mm-hmm. It has to be divided doses. But vitamin C is, you know, an incredibly well-kept secret and will detoxify you from anything, from LSD to toxic metal poisoning to chemical poisoning. Then there's charcoal. Um, the doctors would in the emergency room with poisoning, they give you activated charcoal. Mm-hmm. Now, activated charcoal is the type that you'd use in an absolute emergency, but you wouldn't want to use it more than once a week or twice a week. But if you've just been, if you're at home and you've just been bitten by a poisonous snake or a poisonous spider, I'd be taking the vitamin C and I'd be taking as much charcoal, even if it was out of the, as long as it hasn't got lighter fuel embedded in it, <laughs> uh, straight from the fire if necessary. Wow. But I, I have at home and I make sure my children have got access to a pot of charcoal tablets, not activated charcoal, yeah. but, but the, the old-fashioned charcoal ha- has like a nickname, C60 charcoal, mm-hmm. and because that's the structure of it, 60 carbon atoms. And um, 
you know, if somebody comes around to my house and they arrive and they've got a stomachache or something, they're really in pain, I might, might give them six, eight caps, capsules of charcoal, and usually within about five, ten minutes, I'll say, pain gone, and they go, oh, the pain, oh, yeah, it's gone. I was just going to ask you there, actually, um, something which is very interesting. I mean, we're talking about vitamin C, activated charcoal, these are two things which I've supplemented along for, um, for a while. Um, and there will be a lot of uh, other people as well um, thinking, is it just so simple that we can just supplement these into our diet instead of, instead of taking them through natural means such as food? Well, you know, there are some people who are not going to change their diet no matter what you tell them. Mm-hmm. It may be from financial reasons, it may be from habit, you know, whatever. So will supplements still work even if they're eating the most worst food in the body? Of course they will. Well. And, uh, you know, because... Why do we eat food in the first place? Well, we eat food not for calories, really. We eat for nutrition in the form of minerals. You know, if you serve somebody two meals, one that's really mineral dense and one that's mineral light, for instance, two types of tomatoes. There's the Euro tomato that's pink and flaccid and tastes of nothing. Mm. Then there's that deep red luscious tomato which is fabulous you know you often the darker the material the more minerals are in it why charcoal is so effective you know pregnant women often want to eat charcoal mm-hmm. they want to eat coal because of the subconscious level they know that's so dark it has to be chock-a-block with minerals absolutely full of minerals right and um, so uh, if you feed somebody mineral empty food they'll eat loads of it and the fast food industry know that that's why it's so there's a lot of white food, you know, white buns and so on. Because if you take the minerals out, people will eat more. Because subconsciously, their subconscious is saying, I'm still hungry. Mm-hmm. Even though they've had now 12 burgers or... Yeah. 17 burgers of crisps. <laughs> yeah. And it's addictive. Carbohydrates are addictive. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I've known people who are heroin addicts. Now, if they haven't got any heroin in the morning, okay, they're not the bundle of laughs to be around, but they cope. Um... A wheat addict, when you tell them there is no toast, there is no mm. wheat at all. What do you mean, no wheat? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, they get quite angry. In comparison, I think a wheat addict is possibly worse. <laughs> but the wheat addict probably won't steal to, <laughs> to get the wheat. But maybe they would. Yeah, it's like the sugar cocaine thing as well. When they fed um, the rats um, a choice of sugar and cocaine, rats became more addictive to sugar than they did cocaine. Yeah, but just that study was flawed because... Um, I looked at that study and it was very flawed because what they actually did is is that uh, I can't remember who it was it was a famous scientist but he understood that if you give rats that option without having any other options they're going to obviously choose one of the two anyway but Mm -hmm. if you give them rats in an environment that they can play with other rats they can have like basically a rat park I think that's what it was called rat park this is absolutely right and Mm -hmm. there was a very interesting experiment never going to choose it exactly and it was the same with the American GIs when they came back from Vietnam loads of them were addicted to heroin but when they came back to real life they no longer had a, a need mentally to be addicted to heroin wow. so so there wasn't this crisis of ex-heroin junkies it just didn't happen because you know it was so terrible they needed something like the rats given an option of anything they'd take it so there was this experiment there was i don't remember which chemical company it was one of the pharmaceutical companies wanted to test this mega drug and they sent it to 20 labs around the world uh, for rat tests all 19 labs reported the same thing after six months or whatever it is, all the rats were dead. But there was one, I think Finland, where the rats were still alive uh, in twice, twice the lifespan. 
So they flew up there to see what was going on. And this guy loved rats. And he'd done exactly what he said. He'd made a hotel for the rats. Yeah. And every three days, he changed all the toys. They were loving life. They had no, no need to die. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? That's fascinating, though. Yeah. I mean, that could be... I mean, that, obviously, that's why... I mean, how... Do, here's a question from that. I mean, so how, do you, how important for a human do you think environment is for, for, in regards to health? Well, you know, they've, they say stress is the big killer. Yeah. And it really is, yeah. uh, to, to a large degree, for a lot of people. I mean, you know, we, all, we all know what getting older looks like. We've seen people get older. But a lot of people have actually seen somebody age dramatically, you know, say the wife dies or something, and suddenly they're 10 years old and they're looking awful. Then they fall in love, mm-hmm. and they look 10 years younger, and everybody tells them so. You know, you, you know time and age is flexible to some degree. Yeah. Um, there are people who've you know, taken steps, supplements or whatever, and their grey hair's gone back to brown or whatever it is. It doesn't happen with everybody. Mm-hmm. And some people can't be bothered. But there, there are many examples. I mean, take the liver, for example. Yeah. You, know, you can regrow livers. They regrow really fast. Oh, wow. So that's why yeah, a lot of people abuse alcohol knowing that fact now, won't they? <laughs> well, that's different. I mean, what do people die from at the end of the, end of the day? Well supposedly 45% of us die from fibrosis. So what is fibrosis? It's basically scar tissue. So as we get older, if we're not eating the really good food and getting the sunshine and everything we should be doing, and our body just hasn't got the raw materials to self-repair, let's say you haven't got enough vitamin C, you just can't make perfect skin or something like that, well, then the body goes, goes into emergency mode and lays down scar tissue. Now, scar tissue, for various parts of the body will work differently, but let's say scar tissue works a tenth as well as real cells. Mm-hmm. So 45% of people die from scar tissue. Now they've got so much scar tissue in their lungs they can't breathe properly anymore, or whatever it is. So you can dissolve scar tissue. There are, there are things you can do to dissolve scar tissue. For one thing, you can eat sulfur-rich foods. Sulfur dissolves scars. Mm-hmm. Right? So there are a lot of people out there, particularly women, who say, I've got fibrosis or I've got fibroids. So it's important to understand that when a label gets stuck on somebody, Mm -hmm. it's just a label that fits a bunch of symptoms. doesn't mean you've necessarily got anything that you... It's it's not being scared of viruses or bacteria or whatever it is. It's being scared that you can't self-repair and your immune system isn't up to the job. Mm -hmm. And... um, Um, so there's going to be a lot of women who are actually like I need to get rid of my cellulite now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get lots of sulfur in my diet <laughs> yeah I mean you know, the, the keys to good health are fairly simple at an elemental level um, magnesium is important sulfur is important and a lot of this you can get from foods I mean sulfur rich foods and this may explain why some, some of these products I'm going to mention have benefits sulfur rich foods are things like uh, ginger Garlic, onions, eggs, cruciferous vegetables, all of which I would argue are safe and healthy if it's a real egg. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, as opposed to a supermarket egg, which I would I mean, say. You can most tell the difference if you put the two eggs together. The one, one of the eggs like a, a gold, a real egg, like a goldy yolk, and the other one's like a. Look, basically, it looks like a sickly, sickly yellow, yeah. isn't it? Uh, well, yeah, but it's. It, you, Yes and no. Uh, a friend of mine sells stuffed chicken farmers, and he was showing me this chart. 
you, you can buy chemicals which will you you can choose Possibly the yellowness and the orangeness of your chi- your chicken yolk. You know, oh, so it's got to be careful. For uh, that. <laughs> but you know, there 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 was like two hundred thousand chickens in one one barn, totally free range, big exit over there. But there's no way that chicken's going to step over two hundred thousand other ones to ever find the way out ever. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's something else I wanted to say your thoughts on. I mean, in regards to health, have you done any research on the placebo effect? And how that affects. Well, there's a great book called Mind Over Medicine by Lisa Rankin. I've read that. Yeah, I've read the one by Dr. Joe Dispenza, but I've never read that one. Right. Yeah, Mind Over Medicine, and she's researched so much, so many trials, and it's just stunning, just stunning. And uh, you know, a lot of it is in the zeitgeist of the now. You know, when, when Viagra came out, blue placebos suddenly worked much better mm. than other colours. Uh, you know. I mean, it's just weird stuff, and um, but it turns out even if you tell somebody it's a placebo, it still works, even <laughs> they know. <Yeah. laughs> but uh, you have to be very careful of what they call placebo-controlled trials, because we assume that a placebo means like chalk mm-hmm. or yeah. something like that. Something which has no additional. Benefit. Yes, but of course, in many cases, chalk doesn't work. You know, you want to do a test about water. What are you going to use as a placebo? It's not possible, yeah. right? So the pharmaceutical companies have got so sneaky that now sometimes the placebo trial, what was the placebo? Oh, it was just a lower dose of the drug itself. So they can, they can say against the placebo, there were, no, there were no side effects experienced by the drug as opposed to the placebo. Oh, they just gave a low, I mean, it's, it's insanity and they get away with it and people believe it, even the doctors. The doctors don't know how to read statistics. They don't know when it's a real result or a statistic that's meant to fool them. Mm-hmm. I've heard about Jeez, as well, like good. pharmaceutical companies as well, like because the placebo effect actually like always wins out all the time. And um, there were actually like a lot of like what you were seeing, a lot of pharmaceutical companies were actually like changing the results to benefit their products so they could actually sell more of it and things like that. I think that's outrageous, mate. Yeah. Well, if you look at the uh, success rate of chemotherapy in many cases it's usually about 2.7%, right? They will tell you totally different figures like 50%, but they're not comparing real they're not looking at reality. But the Australians, there are a few countries that have released the figures of how effective chemotherapy works. Mm-hmm. So placebos often work 25% of the time. Yeah. So any drug that works less than 25% of the time is killing you. Has to be by definition. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a really fascinating... um, And lots of drugs don't work that well. I mean, if I was going to go to a doctor-doctor or any type of health professional, I would say, look, if what you're suggesting doesn't work after two or three times, what what, what are you going to do next? Because often they haven't thought about that, and they might say, well, we'll try another drug. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, how will you know that that one will work any better? You sort of put them on the spot... uh, you know, okay, th- and if the second one doesn't work, what would you do then? Then you ask questions like, have you ever, s- how, how many patients like this have you seen before? Mm. What is the percentage success rate with people like me? Mm. How many people are cured on the first go? How many people does it take two goes? How many people do you prescribe multiple drugs for the same problem to? And how many actually are completely drug free after a month, two months, whatever it is? And they're going to be in a corner. The one like you. <laughs> <laughs> That's I've heard. I've heard a scenario before as well. We had a guy in the podcast who was 
with just the vaccination conversation, he was getting a lot of pressure by like public services, people saying that you um, saying that you had to get your kids vaccinated, vaccinated. And he just did what you basically just said there. He started asking them questions: What's this ingredient? What's this? If you can explain it to me, what's this? And they couldn't answer the questions, so they just eventually backed off, left them alone. And I think that goes for a lot, of, lot in life. If you mean, if you just ask yourself a simple question about what is this? What is this really going to do to me on a deeper level? Mm-hmm. Because people don't ask them questions. People just oh. um, they assume that the doctors yeah, exactly. have done the research, read the research, and that the research even exists. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, it's it's pre- you know, informed consent is what doctors are meant to give you. So they give you the information. So you've got all the information, yeah. and then you consent because you've been given all the information so that you can consent to the procedure but the doctors themselves don't don't know <laughs> what's going on and um, you know, the, unfortunately you know, the doctors being taught that our bodies go wrong and it's just bad luck it's just genetics it's your fault because you're a fat you know whatever, yeah. whatever they're going to tell you yeah. <laughs> right you're lazy whatever it is yeah. um, but it's it's not not really that I mean the doctors want to wage war on people's bodies don't they mm-hmm. they say you've got a cancer and we're, we're going to wage war on it it's we're going to burn it out we're going to cut it out we're going to poison it with chemotherapy and so on yeah. but hang on that's your body they want to kill and yeah. take bits out it's the same as going to the car mechanic and the car's not running right the there's something wrong with the engine and the mechanic at the end of the day said we fixed it there's a tumour big red glowing tumour on your dashboard uh, it said warning light and we've taken that out now your cancer's gone <laughs> yeah. that's not how it works in yeah. cars or in bodies mm-hmm. you know a tumour is a symptom of the fact you've probably been not looking after yourself very well to say the least mm-hmm. or you're toxically poisoned or you're nutrient deficient it's just a symptom it's not that that tumour is necessarily the whole thing that's, uh, sorry Dan um, uh, a lot of people now um, are suggesting that instead of tr- um, looking for something, looking for an instantaneous fix to cancer, we're starting to look um, at prevention techniques on how not to get cancer. They say that's the way forward. Well, that's easy. You know, you, you, our, our ancestors didn't get cancer or heart attacks like this. They didn't get type 2 diabetes a lot. And you know, all the modern diseases, you know, fibromyalgia is new. ME is new. It's not like great 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 grandfather had any of this shit. They didn't. Yeah. They just didn't. And so all we got to do is emulate what they were doing, which is eating seasonally, locally, fresh, as much as we can. And where we can't, then we supplement to make up the difference. Yeah, you know, the the old ways were best, but now we're in modern times. We have to use modern thinking to think up new and clever ways that we can get around the mess that we're in. <laughs> and it's not that difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, people all over the world have been recovering from what doctors have said is an impossible, incurable disease. Myself being a good example. Yeah. Was it um, Richard Nixon that said he wanted to wage a war on cancer? It was and at the time there was like one in twenty people who got cancer, and then they showed there were figures, and it was ended up being like one in ten, one in five, and it was a uh, one in three you're getting affected by cancer. Um, was it was that Richard Nixon who? Um, uh, I believe it was, and the thing was that the idea of a war. On people's body is wrong. That whole, yeah, yeah, they should be, they should be really declaring point. love on people's bodies because you want to love your body better. You don't want to declare war on your body. Yeah. I mean, it's just silly. Did it work? No. The figures. It's been over forty years. You put so I, much money into it. I would well. imagine a trillion dollars or something like that. Uh, but because they think that 
cancer is a genetic disease, they will never find the answer because it's not a genetic disease, it's a disease of the body, it's a me metabolic disease. If, as all diseases are, if you are toxically poisoned or and or nutrient deficient, now your metabolism can't deal with modern life. Mm -hmm. You can't adapt to life as it's been thrown at us. I mean, imagine uh, if all the deer in England suddenly got fibromyalgia, multiple sclerosis, park, and there were loads of them hobbling about. Well, that species would, would die out right away. Mm -hmm. So human beings, if they'd been like currently human beings are now in the Western world, with almost everybody on drugs and ill, that species, if it were deer, would never survive, mm -hmm. would they? Mm -hmm. No, no. Yeah, never survive. So people, people don't realize what's disappeared. When I was young, for example, if I were to drive from here to London, I wouldn't get halfway before having to stop. There's no way anybody driving from here to London 50 years ago, 40 years ago, could have made it in one trip. Why? Because of all the dead insects on your windscreen. When I, when I first started driving, there was no way that water would get the dead insects off your windscreen at this time of year. You had to buy sort of squirty, chemical, foamy stuffs which would dissolve the bodies of the insects because you could fly through a cloud of insects. Now, there are no insects pretty much on your windscreen. You ask any old person, remember the Armageddon on your windscreen? Yeah, the old people will remember they had to clean their radiators because the actual radiator got clogged with dead insects. There were so many. The headlights dimmed at night and you had to stop every hour to clean the headlights, otherwise you couldn't see. Wow. So the children now don't know this. They've no idea there's anything different. I mean, we again, old people uh, will remember Budlia. You, you know Budlia, the, yeah. the sort of purple, long flower, looks a bit like lilac, nice smell. And in the old days, when there were butterflies, you'd know a Budlia because it was covered in red admirals and butterflies. Just plastered in them. You can hardly see the flowers for the butterflies. Seen a butterfly recently? Hmm. I've seen a few because I do go nature a lot, but not as much as I used to. No. I mean, I used to go to the Himalayas a lot, and there used to be a few weeks where the sky was dark when the butterflies came over. It was non-stop. Butterflies. Mm -hmm. Darkening the sky. Then, then there weren't. That's so scary. I mean, I, I don't think we actually realise because what... I mean, because insects are a vital part of our health as well. Like, insects... Pollination, yeah, is of course. Pollination is the word that springs to mind. Yeah, of course. That, and that's a, what, what's your, are you, do you have much concerns about that? What's going on in terms of that? Because we had the, um, I think it was, I know it's been around for a while, but do you, uh, was it David Attenborough? Yeah. He, he put out, um, he was trying to like sort of put out a, a message to people, try and tell people that if the bees go, that we will go in five yeah. years' time. I mean, do you have lot, do you have major concerns around that as well, around insects well, well, and well, bees I mean, you know, and pollination? What does what does extinction look like? I think I've just described it. My windscreen used to be you know thousands, thousands of insects. Yeah. Now there's three yeah. or something. Mm -hmm. That's extinction mm -hmm. right in front of everybody. You know, everybody's old will recognise what I'm saying, and. It's right in front of everybody's faces. Yeah, there are some people who, because I've talked about this in the past for years, and some people write in, well, I'm in Canada and there are loads of insects. Well, great. Mm -hmm. yeah. But here in the south of England, they're, they're not here. Yeah. If it just to, Maybe just to bring this to end as well, if you could, like you said before, instead of waging a war on your body, start waging love on your body. If you could, like, sort of just give maybe, I know it's hard, but, like, say, maybe just free practical things that somebody could implement right now in their lives to try and improve the health. What would you see? Okay, well, stop poisoning yourself with <laughs> p 
poisonous shampoos, you know, you rub it in when you have a bath, it's going right into your bloodstream. So stop stop putting poisons onto your body. Stop putting them into your body. I heard him in court and it said, um, it said if you if you're not willing to put it inside your body, don't put it on your body. Exactly right. Yeah. You know, because it's going right in. You know, get getting a hot getting a hot shower, pause the body, open up, and in it goes. Yeah. Mm. Maybe going into the brain. Who knows? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's not scary. like anybody's tested any of this stuff. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> two more. Two more. <laughs> Anyone? Okay. So the big ones are magnesium and vitamin C. You know, go online, study them. I've got loads of uh, videos on YouTube, just hundreds of them, interviewing some of the best people who explain why each thing we're talking about works. How would works. people find them as well? Would they just type well, your name? Well, i just put my name, Clive DeCarl, C-L-I-V-E, Clive DeCarl, D-E. I'm going to be watching them now. <laughs> in other words, C-A-R-L-E. Or, better still, join, uh, go, on, go online and join the Secret Health Club. Put in secrethealthclub.com. Love that name, by the way. Good. Really good name. So join the Secret Health Club, and there are, if you like, the, the hundreds of videos I've done over the years on YouTube have been collated on the Secret Health Club. It doesn't cost money necessarily to join it. And um, so you can, if, you, if you're interested in a particular illness or whatever it is, you can just look up that, and there'll be loads of videos and information. Uh, and it's a lot easier to find. Fantastic. Find any any other last um, one more thing? Any, any more? Okay. <laughs> um, I I don't do many, but I do do consultations. Mm. I'm not cheap by any means, and I, d- I can do it over Skype, but I like to spend a minimum of two hours, and ideally, if I can, get them to come over to my place, have some lunch, spend a day or half a day, because I'm interested in sorting the whole person out once and for all mm-hmm. by teaching them. And I don't think what I'm saying is terribly hard to understand, but it does take time to get through it all because we've been fooled on a nutritional level about mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. Everything they ever told us was a bunch of crap, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, they can come and get a consultation with me. They can, find, they can write to me at Clive at ClivedeCarl.com. And, um, Clive, thank you. Cool. Thank you so really much good. for your time. And I'm so blessed this you've been on this <laughs> podcast. And you just give us a wealth of information and everyone else as well. Really thank good you podcast. So thank you. Oh, well, my pleasure. It's fun to do. Thank you. Another great conversation there. I really hope you enjoyed that, people. And me and Chris are in Brighton this weekend. We have a very interesting debate lined up if all goes to plan. Honestly, it will be an awesome debate. So keep an eye out for that in the up-and-coming episodes. We really have been working and are still working so hard. Me and Chris are travelling all over the UK at every chance that we can. We're trying, we're honestly trying our best to find and have conversations with lots of varied and very interesting people and bring you the most interesting podcasts that we can. And it really would be a huge help to us and allow us to continue to do that if you could support us through our Patreon page or our donation option. We put a lot into this and it would be amazing if you could support us. And all we ask of you is if you could consider supporting us. So anyway, we love you all. Peace and love.